I am thrilled with today's guest. He's a friend of mine. You know him uh, if you are an MSNBC fan. Even if you're not, you still may know him. Uh, Jonathan Lemire, he's the host of Way Too Early. Of course, on MSNBC, he is one of the stalwarts of Morning Joe, White House Bureau Chief of Politico, and author of the instantaneous New York Times bestseller, The Big Lie, uh, and a really good guy. Welcome, sir. Dominic, glad to be here. How you doing, pal? Good, man. Good. You know, I want to delve deep into your past first to start out. You know, there's a couple of little known facts that the audience does not know. First off, your first writing gig, we're going to talk about your writing history at the Daily News and at AP, but you wrote a He-Man book at six years old and you illustrated it. I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about that? What was going on with that at six years old? Well, it's still considered by many to be my finest work. Um, Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I early on, was drawn to writing. I could read at an early age. I liked writing. The uh, illustrations uh, were rather subpar. Um, my mom is also fond of telling the story, and I've always been a big sports fan, about how as a kid, five, six, somewhere in there, I would take my stuffed animals and pr- not just pretend, not just play pretend baseball games with them, but then afterwards write up a recap of the pretend baseball <laughs> game in a pretend newspaper. <laughs> Um, and, uh, there was a puppet frog named Fred and I had a Garfield, the cat who were the stars of the, uh, of the team. I love it. That, that's, that's some very, very, very good, um, uh, insight and understand the other thing I want to talk about, about your youth, which I was very impressed with. I did not, you, you were a track star set world records in, in Lowell. Uh, your, your team was 79 and one year in this, this one year. Uh, and that you were actually got a, a, you were, went to Columbia they brought you in on track. Tell me about your track history. I, I did not know. I know you were a big fan of sports. I did not know you were a big athlete yourself. You can't tell by how quickly I dash off set every morning uh, that there's some track <laughs> history. Yeah, no, I, I've always uh, been a runner. Um, yeah, playing sports as a kid, baseball, basketball, a little bit of flag football. But yeah, in, in high school, uh, track became my sport. I went to Central Catholic High School, which is actually just up the road from Lowell, uh, my hometown. It's in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, you know, I was on the varsity for both indoor and outdoor track all four years. And you, you hit it. Uh, we were 79 in one in league meets over my four years. But here is the sad punchline. That one lost was our last one. Last one. We were 79 yeah, and ouch. 0 and lost the last one. Ouch. Very 2007 New England Patriots, I'm sad to say. Um, but we won a couple of state titles. I do hold some league and school records that I believe still stand. Uh, and then I ran track a little bit at, uh, at Columbia University too. And to these days, I run much slower than I used to. But I still, yes, you I do. still try yes, to you do it do. to keep in shape. You run one more thing for we're gonna go backwards, but mostly I want to talk about what's going on today in Morning Joe and and your history with Trump. Um, your early years at the Daily News. Uh, I mean, you 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 kind of were there really at uh, two thousand one, uh, obviously nine eleven, and you spent ten years at the Daily News. And I think that knowing you, I think that's really informed who you are. Uh, those ten years at the Daily News, you just seem to have a, a pulse of things, street. And it really gave you a tremendous background for where you are now. Yeah, thank you for that, Donnie. And extraordinarily so. The, the Daily News, you know, certainly back then in particular, was really a robust newspaper. I think the fifth or sixth largest paper in the country at the time and really told the stories of the city, the sort of the working and middle class uh, New Yorkers. And I got an internship the summer of 2001, was told – we're going to pay you 200 bucks a week, which, you know, living in Manhattan, that's no, that's not, that's not much, not getting far on that, Donnie. Uh, and, you know, we'll never hire you. But for lacking a better alternative at that point after graduation, I obviously jumped at it and, and had a busy and successful summer. And at the end of the summer, they said, hey, look, we're still never going to hire you. But if you want to keep working and interning for us, we'll keep paying you 200 bucks a week. And at that point, my decision was either to do that or move home with my parents. So 
I did that. And that was September 1st, 2001. And 10 days later, of course, the world changed. So that I was at ground zero around the clock for months, uh, covered the city in crisis and then the rebuilding that led to me getting hired in the Daily News. And, and I agree. I spent a decade there covering the police departments, fire departments, city hall, breaking news, running around the streets, and really got a, a sense of the job and the city and the people who live in it. And I do absolutely think that informed everything I've done in my journalism career since. What it also was fortunate, you know, most people who were covering politics came up, oh, through a, a more political. And I that the fact that you came from a tabloid really prepared you for our first tabloid president and everything that led up to it. I mean, you're, you're just, your basic sense of tabloidness was a tremendous help, I think. No question. And I don't think it's a coincidence that several of us who used to work in New York City and in the tabloids, and that includes like the likes of Maggie Haberman, uh, we, we all ended up in covering the Trump campaign and then in Washington covering the Trump presidency. And I knew Trump. Um, you know, I covered him while I was at the Daily News sometimes for just silly ribbon cuttings or whatever celebrity stunt he was doing. He once even... Tried to set me up on a Tried date. Tried to set you up. He did. With another redhead. I love that. This, this, I want to, just take me to that moment. Because of all the stuff, all the research I've done on you, I just stumbled over that. I was like, I could so picture him doing that. Like, hey, redhead, redhead, let's get the two of you guys together. I mean, take me to that moment, exactly how that happened. You, you, you just nailed it. He, in Donald Trump's mind, couples come color-coded, I guess. I was a young right. reporter. <laughs> I was, I was at the Daily News covering him um, at something, uh, you know, early on in my career. And afterwards, you know, while we were, you know, he finished his event and a couple of us were asking him a couple of questions afterwards and he kept looking at me and I relay the story in my book. He kept looking at me and uh, a, a woman reporter, a female reporter, a young redheaded woman who I did not know, uh, kept looking at us. And at one point turned to me and said, hey, are you guys, are you guys together? And I was utterly dumbfounded, <laughs> utterly dumbfounded. I was like, I know I've never met her. She seems very nice, but I've never met her in my life. Uh, I, you know, I didn't even know her name. And uh, he's like, oh, I, I just assumed you were. I won't do the Trump voice. I just assumed that you were because you're both redheads, I'm, you know. And then I was like, no, we're not. And she slunk off, I think, clearly embarrassed at the idea of ever going on a date with me. Uh, and then afterwards, he summoned me as he was getting in his limo and still seemed befuddled that we weren't together, but then said, well, if you'd like to date her, I could make that happen. So he tried to yeah. play matchmaker for us, but I, I politely declined uh, Mr. Trump's uh, offer. There you go. A pro probably a, a smart move. Not and not knocking that girl, but just somehow having Trump set you no, up. Just I'm sure she was lovely. I, yeah. I get asked this question all the time because I, I knew Trump for many, many years in New York, as well as anybody can know him. I mean, he did my old CNBC show four or five times. Three seasons on The Apprentice that came to my old ad agency, we, you know, for an episode, for a whole episode. Mm -hmm. I lived in his building. We went to charity events together. We would talk on the phone once a while. You know, he would call me his friend. And as much as he has any friends. And I always get asked this question. Did you see the dark side? Did you, you know, and I always say what I saw was kind of a, a snake oil salesman, guy I wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with, wouldn't want to do business with, but I didn't see the evil. I, I, I thought he was in on the joke. He was, you know, Howard Stern would say the same thing. And I'm curious, just did you see anything early on and you were covering him, as you said, in a very different capacity? that would have given you any inklings, any breadcrumbs to kind of the, 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 the man, the president, the, the force that he became? Not in my personal interactions with him. I mean, certainly his claims about the Central Park Five uh, you yeah. know, were there. Like he had a sort of established 
uh, at least some notes of, of frankly, racist rhetoric. And, you know, the lawsuits against his company were certainly part of the public record as well, those discrimination claims. But in my dealings with him, you know, and, and not as often as you, but like, you know, you'd cover him every so often. He was a prominent New Yorker. I was at the Daily News covering yeah, sure. whatever was happening that day. You'd, you'd cover him enough. He'd call the newsroom, whatever it might be. And, you know, you certainly knew he was slick and, frankly, dishonest. I mean, some of the things he would say were easily disproven in the moment. So that part of it doesn't come as a surprise. But some of the other political stances he eventually adopted, I mean, he's been consistent on a few things like trade, let's say. Um, but most of what he embraced as a politician, you know, would have been a surprise to those who knew him uh, who knew him in New York, yes. except that he was a, a shapeshifter, right? He wanted to he wanted yeah. to be liked. He wanted to play to the crowd. Uh, we always knew that. And, and he just transformed, you know, into this politician. But I, I had moved on from covering him by the time he embraced something like birtherism, which was much more of a clue yeah. as to who he would become. You know, it's funny. You said he always, the guy just wants to be admired and loved and liked. And I remember the morning after two, 2016, the morning Joe does that whole, you know, the live audience thing and, and going on and saying to everybody, quite wrong, as I often am, <laughs> don't worry. He did this to get elected. He he has these people now. He has the right wing nuts. He was a, he wants to be loved by celebrities and New Yorkers and uptown people. So he's going to move back. And how wrong I was. I'm curious. You covered 200 events of his uh, when you were uh, at the AP White House AP guy. Do you remember a moment at an event? And there were so many where you said. For the first time, we're not in Kansas anymore. An event that you were covering, that you saw something very different happening. Well, I mean, I, right from the beginning. I mean, I will say so. Two examples. First would be, uh, you know, I was New York based uh, covering politics, and the political editor in D.C. in June of 2015 called me and said, "Hey, you know, Trump's claiming he's going to announce for president. We think he's a joke. We're not even going to bother sending someone up from By Washington." By the you right? You were at the you were yeah. in the escalator, yeah. Yeah, can you be? Can you why? And I, so I was at the bottom of the escalator when Trump came down, and then started talking about Mexicans and rapists. So you're like, okay, this is this is going to be a thing. Um, uh, and then covering him, you know, throughout that campaign, you you knew he would just say things like, you know, he would say three things by noon that would have ended Mitt Romney's career, um, and you'd watch how the crowds would respond to him. Even when he would say things that at the mo at that time were so shocking and so out of step with what, how we're used to hearing politicians speak, and you know whether it was about that the judge in Indiana who he claimed couldn't be impartial sure. about you know his business because he was Mexican and therefore he'd be offended by the wall. You know there were so many before. greatest hits. Yeah. Something like that is seems like number eight hundred seventy four. Ancient history now. And, I, and yeah, I will yeah. say as I was putting together my book and reviewing my old notes and going through the old clips. You, even for someone who lives and breathes it every single day, you forget some of just the, the, the sheer volume of, of frankly, madness um, that he provided. But I will also say in 2016, you know, being there night after night and talking to voters, um, I did think he was going to win, uh, yeah. uh, that, that there were people out there who would tell me um, because the Trump campaign would always put forth this argument. They'd say, hey, he's losing the polls. Sure. But you can't trust the polls. We're finding new voters, which is the hardest and most expensive thing to do in politics. But yet we'd find, and Democrats and, and many pundits were saying, no, that's not true. But we'd find people at these rallies night after night in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, wherever, where people would say, like, I've never talked to a pollster in my life. I haven't voted in 20 years. I've never voted in my life. But I'm going to vote for this guy because he stands up for me. He speaks for me. He struck a chord with people.
talk to me about the life uh, about being a guy on Air Force One traveling around. I, I mean, what is, give me a day in the life when you are a White House guy, you're one of the inner circle people, you're on Air Force One, you're, tra- you're making trips to, what, what does that look like? I know you get you just sighed like you got tired thinking about it right now. I mean, you know, yeah. but you, you, <laughs> well, just, I'm you spend, always tired. Just, yeah, well, we'll talk about that also. But I'm I'm curious. Just take take me through how that works. Sure, sure. So it is. I mean, first of all, it is it is the best beat in journalism. I mean, it's extremely competitive, um, and it's very difficult. Uh, but it's great, and I I do believe all the cliches about first draft. You're writing the first draft of history. You have a civic responsibility uh, to tell. The, the nation and the world as to what the president of the United States is doing, arguably the single most important and powerful person on the planet. So I you know did that for years with the AP and now at Politico and a day at the White House. Yeah, I mean, you're, you can be in the if you're in the building, you're in the briefing room, you're talking to senior officials, you know, elsewhere in the West Wing, you're trying to talk to people for information. You also the way to cover White House is normally is that White House is like this one, the Biden administration, pretty buttoned down. Like, puts, you know, they, out, they're, they're on the message. Days events. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 they're on message, you know, and you have to get a lot of your information from the outside and bring it in. The Trump White House didn't work that way, where you could be, you get anybody on the phone almost at any time. Four different people would tell you four different things. Three of those things were trying to knife another person at Trump White House. It was so much backfighting. <laughs> there was so much infighting. Yeah. And frankly, there was so much lying. So it was, a, it was a challenge for all of us to learn how to cover it. But yes, I mean, you mentioned Air Force One. I mean that's part of the gig too, and and, and is that the, there's a there's a press cabin in the back where you know the, the thirteen members of just the press pool, not the whole press corps, of course, just the, whoever's in the pool that day, the traveling pool, yeah. sits with the, sits in the back of the plane, and you travel with the president, whether he's going to uh, Wisconsin or whether he's going to the Philippines, uh, you know, and you have access sometimes to the president himself. Trump, in particular, was fond of coming back. Uh, I mean, I will say it's not a bad way to get around as a presidential motorcade. You really cut through the traffic in places like Tokyo when you can do it with lights and sirens. Um, And you often end up at some of the craziest and most important moments of a presidency. And and with Trump, I was there when he was at the DMZ and he stepped over uh, into North Korea, becoming the first president to do that. I was there when in Saudi Arabia when he put his hand on that weird glowing orb that all these years later, we're still not sure what that is. Uh, So it's it's a vital and important role. Um, and it never stops being cool. And you proudly wear the badge of uh, one of Trump's least favorite journalists, yeah. uh, you know, that ended with a, not ended, but your crescendo and, and really, I think, kind of launched you to a, a different level in terms of notoriety and, and, and gravitas was Helsinki. Take me back to that moment, uh, because that was that's kind of a, a watershed moment in your career. It was a, a, a one of the most important questions ever asked for president, one of the defining questions of his presidency. Take us to that moment. Sure. So this was July of 2018. Um, and then President Trump was on a tour of Europe. Uh, just days earlier, he had threatened to pull the United States out of NATO, which of course is a longtime goal of Vladimir Putin. And this was his first summit with Putin. And of course, let's just take a step back and remind the listeners, at this is the moment that was the height of the Mueller investigation. There were questions swirling for years as to what ties, if any, Trump had to the Kremlin, you know, what influence Putin had with him, you know, and the, the meeting was set for Helsinki, Finland. The two men had met briefly once before, but this was their first extended conversation. It was just them the whole day. Uh, and I was at the pool that day, I was with the AP. And after the news, after the uh, summit, which included a private meeting by the, the two men, uh, they had a news conference. And it was a, a limited news conference where two American reporters got to ask questions and two Russian reporters got to ask questions. Um, and I was the second 
an, an American reporter and the final journalist. Who makes day. who makes that decision? How do, how does that work out? You you get that? Yeah, it, it's actually ticket. really it's actually it's actually sort of interesting. So normally, what happens is a White House press shop will create a list of reporters who are there, right? Because not everybody, and and no one expects every president to know every reporter's name. And they just they put it on the, the reporter the the president's podium, and he can kind of pick. They might suggest who to take, but they don't. They you know. They don't pre-screen. I will say, like, we don't tell them in advance what we're going to ask. It's simply, uh, you know, they you know, they'll put and he'll decide who he wants. And there have been other moments I have been told by White House officials where I was at news conferences with Trump who didn't like me, in part because of the Morning Joe Association, in part because of some tough questions I asked him during the campaign. He once called me a sleaze bag and threw me out of an event yes. in 2016. Um, so he tried. Thank you, uh, illustrious company there. So he often would avoid my questions. And there were other news conferences where he, my name was suggested to him and he would ignore it. Um, but that day, and this is a minute detail, but important one, Trump himself didn't make the decision. Uh, the Russians were technically the home team, if you will, in this news conference, uh, and they set the ground rules. And they didn't want Putin picking reporters. Rather, they had their press secretary do it. So mm -hmm. therefore, the White House followed their lead. And it was Sarah Sanders, who was press secretary at the time. She called my name. Therefore, that's how I was able to ask Trump a question. And I'll fast forward a bit to say Trump got extremely angry at her later for choosing me because he said, why would you ask, let a, quote, tough reporter ask a question? So I didn't know I was going to be called on until the moment, but I knew I, what I wanted to ask. You knew. you So you had that question in your pocket. Yeah. That was, if, if, if you got called on, that was it. I ha right. had to. I mean, in that moment, he had never been directly asked this question, particularly with Putin standing next to him. So I asked, yeah. you know, every U.S. intelligence agency has said that Russia interfered with the election. We just heard Putin say he didn't. Who do you believe? Um, right. I mean, but in hindsight, such an obvious uh, kind of macro sums it all up question. And yet, you know, it, it would have, a lot of people would have missed that, but it was just a great question. It really was. Well, thank you. And he, and he stumbled in his response. He, he basically sided with Moscow. He did not uh, condemn Putin, which was the second part of my question. Um, and he then set off a, a firestorm back home and around the world. A lot of Republicans even who were so loath to criticize him on anything did on this. John you didn't know that. You got, on, you got on the plane and you were, you were on the plane for 10 hours and then you landed and you had like 50,000 tweets and all of a sudden you realized the impact of that question. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked that question and then I asked Putin if whether or not the Russian government had any compromise, any com compromising materials on Trump or his family. He kind of laughed it off, but didn't deny it. Um, but then we, we, we were whisked out of there. And, and you're right. That was the end of the summit. We got right on Air Force One. Reporters don't have Wi-Fi access on Air Force One. Uh, so we, we, we go in the bubble. We fly up. We land. And I learned a couple of things. Instantly, yes, my phone almost melts down from the notifications. I got like 50,000 Twitter followers. We land to the firestorm. We suddenly learned how the nation had been set ablaze by Trump's performance in Helsinki. And even Senator John McCain suggested it was treasonous. Uh, we also learned later that Trump got on the plane thinking he had done a good job. And within a few minutes, because he flipped on Fox News, he suddenly realized he hadn't, or at least it was perceived that he hadn't. Uh, he, right. he blew up at Sarah Sanders and was so angry and so anxious to get home. Uh, he told the pilots of Air Force One to floor it, and we shaved about an hour and a half off our flight time. <laughs> so that was our first cue that some clue that something had gone, that something was right. off. Right, right. That, that's amazing. So how did you become? You've got your own show. Yeah. You're, you know, like a one of the. I don't know. You're not. A, I guess you're co-host. You're, you're on the show, the entire show, much to your chagrin sometimes. I think. So how did that evolve? How did you get so entrenched in the Morning Joe uh, uh, culture, 
brand? Would give me the backstory because all of a sudden you had been a guy who was like, yeah, you'd show up and you, were, and then all of a sudden you were just there all the time. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, became an MSNBC contributor in 2017 uh, once I started covering the White House, and obviously there was such demand for people to talk about Trump, uh, right. who was such a you know a draw on cable. And I started doing Morning Joe a couple times a week. Um, I do remember, and Donnie, you certainly know how this goes. Like I remember my first time being on it. I think it was like the summer of 2017. And it was one of those, like, you're on for 10 minutes. Uh, and I was on for 10 minutes. And then the next day, Alex Corson, the wonderful, the amazing Alex Corson. The we love show, Alex. We, we, you know, Alex has never gotten a shout out on this show. Alex Corson, the, the EP, the tireless, selfless, brilliant EP of Morning Joe. And let's give Alex a shout Alex out. Alex Corson Absolutely. deserves all the credit, no doubt. Yeah. Um, it is a tough job with tough hours. And the next day, he's like, oh, we'd love to, you know, we'd love to have you back soon. And he said, hey, come back on, you know, six to nine. And I was like, oh, okay. Thinking to myself, that meant like sometime between six and sometime nine, I would be on. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, no, no, yeah. you'll be on from six to nine. I was like, oh. Uh, and then, we, you know, it started off two days a week, three days a week. And then, yes, for a few years now, I'm on every day, uh, basically the whole thing every day. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's something I'm thrilled about. Uh, love the show. Love Joe and Mika, who have always been uh, so generous uh, to me. And, you know. One thing about Joe and Mika that people don't know, it's interesting, and it's it's you wouldn't know this about Joe. They are not that you wouldn't know it. It's just it's a, they're incredibly loyal to a cadre of people yeah. who like they will do anything for who if if you're their people. And I'd like to include myself in that. And any favor, anything you have their back, they have your their your back. It's really a very um, warm club. It's a family. Uh, they they say yeah, that, and it's yeah. right. And, and they have been they have been so great to me. And you know, I you know it's it's a, such a position I appreciate. Uh, to be on the show every day, um, and you know they obviously want me to to bring my insights and, and reporting there, uh, you know, and Willie and Barnacle and the gang, you know, Donna, you're yeah. you're okay too. Uh, it's it's right. a great uh, it's it is a great it's a great group. Um, so I you know for years now I've been sort of a regular on the show, um, and then about a year and a half ago, they offered me they asked me if I wanted to take over uh, and host uh, the 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 pregame show if you will the five a.m. Uh, yeah. way too early, uh, which we have you know tightened in and. and turned into like a, a really good show that I'm proud of as well. It's a great show. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Sure. I'm on Morning Joe once, maybe twice a week, not for the full show, half hour, hour or whatever. And I am stunned at the impact of that show, the influence of that show, wherever I go, because it is the, it is like the show that people with a brain in the morning watch. I, I mean, it's like, I, if I was going to just break down the demo, you know, it, it is, there's nowhere, I, I don't want to insult any of the broadcast morning shows. It's kind of a different game. It's a different math. But the power of this show, I see it in the reaction I get from people as a relatively small player on the show. The impact of the show is stunning. It really is. It's extraordinary. And it has d done so now for 15 years. It's going into its yeah. 16th year now. It, do, it really does drive the conversation. People that matter watch it, whether that's Wall Street people, yes. advertising people. That's what it people. is. It's people, it's people that matter. That, that's the best way to say it. It's people that That's a great way of saying it. Watch that and, show. And certainly Washington watches it. It's a, yeah. lawmakers both sides of the aisle. It's what's on in the Senate. It's what's on in the House gym. Uh, and it's certainly on the West Wing. Both our previous and current president watch it every day. Uh, yes. So does their senior staffs. And it has a remarkable reach. And it's true. It, it, it can shape the conversation. It can sometimes shape policy. Um, it, it becomes centered in the national conversation a lot. And people really, it means a lot to them. And like, for instance, as an example, I was just in Arizona in Tucson, the University of Arizona, this past weekend for a book festival. I can't tell you the number of people who came up to me and said, 
how they start every single one of their days with Morning Joe. And these are people who, mind you, that means getting up at two or three in the morning sometimes to watch yeah. way too early yeah. in Morning Joe. Uh, yeah. But yet it's just, it's part of, they rely on that show and those of us on it uh, to deliver the news and to sort of start their day and get them how they think about the day. You know, I'm somebody who is one of those people. Yes, I'm on it sometimes and there are other times I'm not. And I kind of start my day with it. It's just, it become it's a very behavioral thing, the show. It is, it's, it's, it's not background because you're very attentive to it, but it it's something that just you kind of just you get it's like you get comfortable with it, and it's and you you if you if for some reason you miss it on a day, you feel uninformed it because it's just a different it's a different animal. I want to talk about the your show. Tell me how the, the sausage comes together. At what time do you get up? Because that that's just a your brew. I want to say to the audience out there that you are the one person you're doing four and a half hours a day. You're not doing four. You're doing four and a half hours. You're doing day. five. That's doing five. You're doing, I mean, wait till release at five. That, that's right. Yeah. Five. That's right. I, I forgot it was. That's right. It's an hour. You're doing five hours of live television a day. I don't know if there's anybody else on this planet who can say that. I I actually tend to think there isn't, or at least no one I've met. And if yes, I do, if right. there is someone out there, I, I feel bad for him or her. Um, yeah, it is. So I'll, I'll walk you through it, and I can do it either from New York or or DC. Uh, and it's a, and it's a great team. Dan Norwick, should, we should also give a, a shout out to sure. as well. He's the EP of Way Too Early, and also helps run. He's sort of Alex's second in command on on Morning Joe. Um, the a lot of it is done the day before, right? I, I'm a, it's a constant text thread with. Dan and the bookers and some of the show's writers about, okay, what's the next day going to look like? What are the stories that are popping today? What do we need to talk about? And it's a fluid conversation. We start booking guests as the day goes on. And then in the evening, we obviously, you know, we, we stay with it, refine it, and then finalize it, it, much yeah. like Morning Joe. It's a, it's a similar, it's the same teams. Yeah. Uh, but of course, we all then have to go to bed uh, because we get up so early. So I, my alarm goes off, painful. My first alarm goes off at 3.10 a.m. Um, and my feet need to be on the floor at 3.30. Uh, and I'm in the car uh, right around 4. And basically, but I will say, Donnie, at that hour, not much traffic. So no you, no, you, no say, traffic. you sail into the studio, either in New York or D.C. And at that moment, it just really is the finishing touches. I have my last conversation with my EP, Dan. One last read through the scripts, make up and go. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you're... Then as soon as you're done at six, I move over to Morning Joe. At the same time, the process for the next day is way too early. Uh, starts yeah. all up again. So it, it is, and I, I try to get to bed, I'd say around nine o'clock. You know, once or twice yeah. a week, I try to get in a little earlier, 8.30 or 8. Some days it'll slip till 9.30 or 10, depending on what's going on. There's never enough sleep. That comes with it, as we all, all of us in the morning know. Um, but it's, 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 it's sort of the only way to do it. And it's a show that, you know, again, matters to people it's it's it's, it's 5 a.m it's it's not you know it, it is it's the morning joe's sort of opening act but it's it's a it's a nice place to get all your headlines uh and some smart analysis yeah. to start your day yeah yeah how does this work with a marriage and two kids <laughs> there, there there are struggles sometimes i uh, you know i try not to inflict my alarm on anybody else uh right. you know i sleep somewhere else um uh, you know certainly in the mornings i'm waking up and uh the kids are you know they're great they get a kick out of um tucking dad into bed once or twice a week. Uh, but yeah, I have two boys. They're 11, they're 11 and 8. They're great. Uh, so obviously I'm not there in the mornings uh, to, to drop them off at school. But, but you're there in the afternoons. I'm there in the afternoons. Uh, I'm yeah. there in the evenings, you know, usually, often around, the, you know, usually around the weekends, take them to their sports and stuff. They're both yeah. big baseball and soccer players. So it, it, it's a challenge. My, my life is time management because, of course, I'm also yeah. – 
still working for I'm working for Politico and covering the White House too. So I'm you know which requires being actually at the White House sometimes, but not yeah, always. Sometimes, um, and you know, but it's a matter of working the phones and texting and calling people. You know, you're traveling sometimes. It's it it's my day is is laid out uh, pretty precisely, and sometimes it includes a little cat nap. Um, but it's also this is these are great positions and it's a great honor. And I, I love doing what I'm doing. No, and you're doing an amazing job. Just a little current events. You know, it's such a the constant theme probably right now on on morning joint politics is is kind of the state of the Republican Party and how fucked they are right now in the sense of that they are held prisoner by Trump. And uh, if Trump wins the nomination, it's going to be almost, I don't want to say impossible. The numbers don't add up for him to get reelected. They, ju- they just don't. You don't have the suburbanites. You don't have the independents. You, I mean, anything can happen. But he would, it would, I think, be such a long shot for him to win. Yet if he doesn't get the nomination, and DeSantis, who would be a formidable candidate, I mean, everything I know about Trump is he would run as an independent. So one way or another, they're stuck with Trump. And it's a losing formula. It just is. Uh, what do you, if you were advising the Republican Party right now, what do you do? What do they do? I mean, they've, they've fallen down and they can't get up. Yeah, and to further your point, I mean, just this weekend at CPAC, Trump made clear yeah. that he's, he's in this through the end, even if he's indicted on one or multiple yes. uh, investigations. And we certainly know there's plenty swirling around him at the moment that he's going to go through. And you make a great point. He's not going to go quietly. Who, who now thinks... That in 2024, Trump's going to behave any differently than he did in 2020. Yeah. If he loses, he's going to claim that it was rigged. He's not going to concede. He's not going to bow out. And yeah, he may even try to run as an independent or at the very least tell his supporters to don't back the nominee, whether it's DeSantis or anyone else. And that's the case. There's no chance for a Republican to win that November. They have boxed themselves in that it's so difficult to imagine how they divorce themselves with Trump because as much as I think a growing part of the establishment would like to move on. He still has his base. And I think his base has, yeah. has shrunk a little bit. I do. Shrunk, um, but it's still 25% of the 30% of the party, whatever it is. It's, 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 a, it's a real number that's just, that is going to be uh, titanic in shaping the, shaping the outcome. No question. And, and the more candidates that jump in and the, the more diffuse the Republican field gets, the better it is for Trump who walks in the door with, yeah. you, with as you say, that 30% or so. Um, so, I mean, that's the, the, the dynamic with Trump is, and, and it's sort of a, the, the, the dichotomy is he has probably the highest floor of just about anybody, but he also clearly has a ceiling. And like low ceiling, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. He, and I think that that floor is going to, could carry him through the Republican Party. I think at this moment, in early March of 2023, he's the favorite. He is. He's the favorite. Okay, have to get to him. He has to be. But, but at the same time, he that, that ceiling, at the moment anyway, it would seem to make it hard for almost impossible for him to win a general election. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem. Do you, you mentioned CPAC and I was watching his speech and I've said this, and I've said this on the air. He feels very different to me. Uh, I, they, you don't see a lot of side by sides of, you know, him speaking in 2016 or 2015. You know, he seems tired. He seems defeated. Like he's out there because he wants to be out there, but he doesn't feel like he's on as much of a mission. He, he, it, there's something, I don't want to say he's lost his fastball and he's four years older, obviously. He's not a young man. He doesn't seem to be in it, in his soul, the way he was. Yeah, the rhetoric, if you, if you read the speech, I mean, it's dark and fiery and dangerous, right? It's declaring that I am your retribution uh, yes, is, yeah, is, pretty, yeah. is pretty scary, ominous stuff. 
You're right, though, that there are real questions. And this includes some people in the Republican Party who have been Trump supporters in the past, wondering if he's got the fire in the belly this time around. That, yeah. and, and as much as Trump is, you know, at this point, it's impossible to look at him in any other way but through the prism of his presidency and January 6th and everything else. But if you do flash back to 2015, 2016, like there was a charisma to him. There was a celebrity yes. to him. The guy could be entertaining. Like, I mean, that's why people, well, not some of them, anyway, like him. The guy put on a show and there's no show anymore. There's, there, there's nothing and about the, way, the Trump that's and, and funny or entertaining. Times, he was running as the outside, this exciting new shiny toy the first time. Right? And then he was running as president. So he was always coming from a position of power and a position yeah. of strength. And that's his brand. He doesn't feel strong now. It, he, and he's not coming from a position of power. And he, you, you see it, in, in the way I know him, you see he feels it inside. Yeah. And I think it's also, it, not only is he perhaps tired, but the act is tired. What's also striking to me is yeah. he has nothing new to say. It's the exact yeah, same yeah. speech, the exact same rhetoric, in some cases, the exact same lines that he delivered in 16 and 20, and, and now he's doing it again. And, and, and you know, it's so much of it is grievance, but it's particularly grievance about the 2020 election. And that one thing we do know about politics, and Trump has broken almost every rule of politics, but elections are about visions for the future, and Trump is only talking about the past. And that 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 that's not going to help him make his case. So... Uh, game it out. I know we don't like to do predictions in the media, but how do you see this all playing out? Uh, that's a tough one. Just pr- pr- yeah. prediction. I know. I mean, don't nobody has the answer, obviously. Um, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. If we're sitting at a bar and I go, how do you? How does this play out? I think that there will be there will be a big enough Republican field to jump in. Um, I think DeSantis will walk in the door as certainly the favorite of the anti-Trump forces. Um, yeah, there's no, there's nobody, there's not a close second. It, no, it, he's I mean, far there'll away. be the, everybody will have two or three or 3% or 2%. And then Trump will have 35 and DeSantis will have 22. I, I mean, it won't, it won't even be close, you know. Strictly, strictly for entertainment purposes, uh, my predictions here. Yeah, I think that, that, that I think there are questions about DeSantis once he is vetted nationally, which hasn't happened yet. Uh, I think a Trump-DeSantis debate would seem to favor Trump. So, I mean, if I had to just, as a lark, pick, I would pick Trump coming away as the nominee. Yeah. I do think President Biden, I think he is going to delay his uh, re-election announcement for a few more months still because he sees no urgency to it. There's no one in the Democratic Party challenging him. But I do think that he will that he will run again as well. So I think we will, we will get ourselves a rematch uh, of 2020. Speaking of Biden, and we talk about this a lot on the show also, if you are scoring at home, his presidency. I'm not talking about style points. I'm talking about, you know, meat and potatoes, accomplishments, legislative victories, domestic, international. You give this guy an A minus. I mean, he's done a really, really good job. And on top of his demeanor of calming. And yet, why is it just we're just so polarized at this point? The people I talk to who are on the other side, Biden, he sucks, Biden. And then you kind of hit them with facts. Well, you know, he wants to defund the police. That they go to some outrageous. What is it? His age that he doesn't, or is it just we're just so polarized at this point that no president will ever be above forty six percent at this point going forward? Yeah, I, I think a couple points here. First of all, just to grade him, I agree he's been extraordinarily successful over two years, and to do so with very narrow margins in Congress uh, those yeah. first two years, and now of course the Republicans have. Uh, have the House. And we shouldn't forget that he took office while the nation was at the absolute depths of the pandemic. Sure, sure. sure. Uh, and just two yeah. weeks after January 6th. Um, and, and he's also been 
to this point held together an alliance to support Ukraine against against Russia as well. So yeah, the resume is is very very is very very strong. Um, I think that what was challenging for him. First of all, you're right that that there's so little bipartisanship these days. I do think we're just so polarized. There'll be very few Republicans who will ever back him, uh, you know, or even want to give him credit for anything he's done. But I think the bigger challenge that he's going to have is actually among Democrats because poll after poll suggests, and you get this anecdotally too, but there's numbers to back it up. There are so many Democrats who are, are very fond of Joe Biden, who are very, who approve of the job he's done, who are grateful they don't, they to don't him for not just beating Trump, but for, for everything he's, you know, the legislatively accomplished, but they don't want him to run again. And I do think age is the issue. Like it, it's going to become that much more of an issue going forward. 100%. There's, there's no other issue. You don't, We've gotten used to seeing a show. We want to see a good show. We, Obama was a great show. Trump was a great show. Biden, although the blacking and tackling is there, he's not a great show. It's not a great, and, and it that his oldness translates to weakness, uh, which is not there, of course, if you look at the record. But no, that that's a, you bring up a a really interesting point. Look, we could talk all day. I know you're busy. I appreciate your time, my friend. You were a good man. Uh, he's of course the host of Way Too Early. The author of The Big Lie, uh, instant New York Times bestseller, um, White House guru for Politico, man about town, and very tired gentleman. Jonathan Amir, I appreciate your time, my friend. Donnie, it was a pleasure. A lot of fun.